0: When I ask people, you know, what is their vision of a racially harmonious society look like? They'll say, oh, when I see a snapshot of graduation or something, I want it to be more diverse faces. I don't want it to be all white faces. And I tell that person, at Theory of Enchantment, we believe that there's so much diversity in a single human being, let alone an entire group of people. So really, the lens that we're trying to get you to obtain is one through which you can actually see that even in a room full of white people, there is diversity actually going on. You just have to know how to look in a way that goes beyond simply being skin deep. And you can only do that if you learn how to do that with yourself. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
1: When I heard that when Elizabeth II had passed away, I was more moved by the news than I expected. And I've been reflecting for the last few hours on why that might be. Now, as a preamble, I'm not a monarchist. I didn't grow up in the United Kingdom. I have watched The Crown, like many of you, and learned even more about how cruel an institution is the monarchy can often be. So I didn't have any particular love of the House of Windsor, and I wasn't expecting to be especially moved by this news. Now, part of the reason is simply that Queen Elizabeth II herself was in many ways an admirable public servant, that she ruled for seven decades with a real sense of duty towards the constitutional monarchy of the United Kingdom, that she, unlike so many politicians today, that she was able to deprioritize her own personality, her own quirks, her own opinions in the name of that duty. I think a second reason is one that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that there is a real advantage to having a split between a head of government and a head of state. In countries like the United States, the elected political leader also gets to have all of the symbolism of being the sovereign, of being the head of state. And I think that makes it easier for them to expand their powers. And it makes it harder for people to robustly criticize the president because there's always some hint of disloyalty In criticizing the representative of the state, of the people. In a constitutional monarchy, as well as in certain presidential systems uh, where the president has a mostly procedural role, there is a solution to this problem. You're supposed to pay some amount of deference to the head of state, but the head of government, the prime minister in the British case, who actually decides on politics, is not above a political fray. It is perfectly fine to question and criticize them robustly because they are not the representative of the state. I think that's healthy for political dynamic. But finally, I have spent the last few days in the country of Georgia, learning about the way in which a few political personalities are jeopardizing the country's great progress towards democracy over the last decades. I've been reflecting on the United States and the prospect that Donald Trump may be prosecuted and may run again for president in 2024. And by contrast to those political figures and so many others, the idea of somebody who is studiously boring, somebody who as an act of duty, hides and backgrounds the personality. Somebody who there's no reason to get very excited about looks very, very appealing. There is a space for charisma in politics. There is a space for transformational leaders. But considering the alternatives, many people in the world would happily choose to be governed or to be represented by somebody who in the best possible sense was as boring as Queen Elizabeth II. And so my hope as I reflect on the long reign of Queen Elizabeth II is not that other countries will emulate or institute the British monarchy that is neither feasible nor desirable. But that we will have more political leaders and statesmen who have a sense of duty, who can sometimes come across as, in the best possible sense, a little bit boring, who allow us to lead decent lives rather than exciting us about politics in all the worst possible ways. My guest today is Chloe Baldry. Chloe and I have a lot of things in common in terms of how we think about the world and want to empower people to have better and deeper connections with each other to overcome the injustices that still structure so many democracies. As you'll see from this conversation, we also have some real differences on how we approach the world. In particular, Chloe, I think, has much more of a spiritual bent than I do, and that informs both how she talks and the work she is now doing. She's a critic of the way in which many diversity and inclusion workshops are now run, in particular of the kind of pessimistic and confrontational epistemology of somebody like Robin DiAngelo. And so she has actually founded her own organization called Fury of Enchantment, which tries, as she explains, to make people whole and to allow them to connect with each other at a deeper level. This is a pretty unusual conversation for my podcast, but I think you'll find it as fascinating as I did. Chloe Valdry, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's great to have you on. I've been following your work for a long time, and you're somebody who's pretty rare in writing really interestingly about the world, thinking interesting about the world, but you're also a kind of entrepreneur and an activist. So you have some critiques of the way in which a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion space works. And rather than just complaining about it on Twitter, you're actually trying to build a better alternative. So perhaps let's start with, you know, why are you concerned about the way that many companies, institutions, universities run those kind of DEI trainings? What's wrong with a lot of the status quo? And then perhaps later we can get to what you want to put in this place.
0: Yeah. So funny enough, I didn't intend to get involved in the diversity and inclusion space. I was building something that was established to basically teach people how to love. And then folks who were a part of companies that were bringing in diversity and inclusion trainings of a standard variety were essentially experiencing the absence of love and they were experiencing an environment in which, you know, facilitators would come in and encourage people to judge one another based upon their skin color or based upon other immutable characteristics that they may have possessed, encouraging people to self-segregate even based upon skin color. And this was oftentimes reported back as actually causing havoc in the workplace where people who didn't agree would be shunned or their very disagreement would be deemed itself evidence of racism. So this was you know, wreaking havoc in the workplace and causing discord between colleagues. And so I think that that is what has been driving a lot of organizations to look for an alternative approach. So
1: tell us a little bit more about that model. One way that I've heard that it described is that a lot of these trainings are based on a common enemy model and that what other people are trying to put in its place is sort of common humanity model. Is that a helpful way of thinking about it or what is it that goes wrong in some of those trainings at the moment?
0: I never thought about it in the terms of like that paradigm of sort of who is the common enemy and how can we defeat the enemy, I could say that actually one could transform that premise in such a way that it doesn't have to be hostile or it doesn't have to result in dehumanizing the other. One could position it to mean we all have a common enemy and the common enemy is each of us, <laughs> right? It's ourselves. And so we need to like work on how that manifests. But yeah, I could see it applying in that sort of limited way that you're meaning right now, where the common enemy is basically white people, for lack of a better way of putting it, and people with white skin color are basically given that sort of a metaphysical designation that you spoke about at Aspen Ideas Fest as sort of being the representation of the source of all evil in the United States against which we all must fight without end. I would say an alternative, or the alternative certainly, that I try to present through my organization. Is an approach that essentially says that bigotry and prejudice is usually caused when a person is experiencing or a group of people are experiencing some kind of insecurity, usually of a psychological nature. And because they don't have the proper tools to deal with that insecurity, they project that insecurity onto other groups of people as a defensive mechanism. And so if you want to tackle that at the source and in a sustainable way, you actually have to teach people how to get in healthy relationship with themselves and with their own complexity so that they're less likely to project in the first place. And what that requires is actually a questioning of some of the dogmas of contemporary DEI and questioning whether some of them are themselves coming from a place of insecurity on the part of those facilitators who are promoting them or who are trying to spread them. So, for example, you know, White Fragility was obviously a super popular book in 2020, And the idea was that white people are inexorably and existentially fragile when it comes to talking about race and are basically always wrong (laughs) if they have a different opinion on race. They're always wrong by simple virtue of their skin color. And what's interesting about that is that resulted in an infantilization of people with darker skin color, right? That resulted in this idea that Black people are totally incapable of withstanding or dealing with disagreement, dealing with a variety or diversity of opinion on this very specific topic. And so, the very thing that Robin DiAngelo accuses, in particular, I guess, white people of being, she doesn't actually undermine that. She accuses white people of being inherently racist, but it's strange. Because by doing so, she actually perpetuates the notion that she herself is racist, and she perpetuates certain ideas that are at the heart of white supremacy itself. Because if you believe that every single aspect of Black life in America is somehow, number one, desolate or full of despair, and number two, that all of that despair and desolation is actually caused by white people or whiteness then you are conceding that whiteness is, in fact, an all-powerful kind of omnipresent force, which is an actual tenant of white supremacy. And so it's ironic that Robin D'Angelo ends up perpetuating the very beliefs that she seems to want to undermine in her book.
1: Yeah, at an intellectual level, what I found most striking about D'Angelo's theory is the ways in which it's unforceifiable, right? So you know, I have a very extreme view of the nature of racism in the United States. And if you don't acknowledge that in any kind of way, that's just all the more proof that you're racist and how strong the hold is white supremacy is. So there's just no standpoint from within which you can legitimately criticize D'Angelo's theory. At a psychological level, what I find most striking is that she said on a number of occasions that when a white person interrupts a non-white person they are bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. But that I think shows exactly the inability to envisage relationships of equals, because obviously there can be, you know, the old white boss or faculty member or whatever, who like continually interrupts in a disrespectful way, the young woman of color, sure, fine. We all know that that exists and that's a real thing to worry about. But when you're friends with each other, we interrupt each other, right? When we hang out in Aspen, I'm sure you interrupted me at some point. I'm sure I interrupted you at some point. That's the nature of being friends. And it just made me think, speaking of projection, that Robin DiAngelo does not appear to have any friends who are non-white, or at least she doesn't seem to have understood the logical takeaway from that friendship. I don't know which it is. But that to me is just really striking in that kind of way of talking about the world.
0: Yes, it's funny you say that. I was recently thinking about acquiring a number of, practices that john verveke the cognitive scientist out of university of toronto describes as serious play so for example things like tai chi meditation could be one even dialogue could be another one acting could be another one all of these things are practices that require a kind of capacity to be present and presence also requires the capacity to be vulnerable And these are both necessary when cultivating friendship, when cultivating deep friendship. But if you superimpose upon that a kind of fake superficial way of speaking to each other by virtue of skin color, then you actually make that kind of deep friendship cultivation impossible because you're not being present and you're not actually truly dialoguing with vulnerability in the present moment, you're just sort of anticipating what's going to happen next because you've assumed all of these different things about your fellow dialoguer. And that is really unhealthy (laughs) behavior to encourage, especially right now. When, if you think about like, we just went through COVID and we were in isolation for a long time, we weren't able to connect to each other physically we need to cultivate a capacity for deep friendship, especially now because of the scarcity of friendship that was created during COVID and the scarcity of real connection that was created during COVID. And instead we have these different, I don't know if you call them quasi movements that are encouraging us to go in the opposite direction. And that's really dangerous.
1: That's interesting to me. I think you expressed in very different language, something that I've thought about a lot and which helps explain why I'm so allergic to people like D'Angelo. You know, and that's what I grew up Jewish in Germany. And within that context, I was sort of a salient representative of an oppressed minority group or, you know, historically oppressed minority group. And the most alienating thing I experienced wasn't a form of anti-Semitism, which I experienced sometimes, but not that often certainly unpleasant, but it was sort of easy to know how to deal with it. It was like, screw you, right? I'm not ashamed of being Jewish. It was a kind of creepy philo-Semitism where people were so aware of our respective identities and were so careful in how they treated me and so desperately proved to me how much they love the Jews and how sorry they are for the crimes of Germany's past, but it just felt impossible to have a genuine friendship with them and felt impossible to have a genuine connection to them. And I think you know, as somebody who's then come to the United States and sort of changed role in a certain kind of way, going from the Jew in Germany, who's a representative of a historical group of people who've been discriminated against to being, you know, a white guy and a representative of a historical group of perpetrators or something like that, is sort of being expected to treat others in certain contexts in the way that I was treated in Germany and knowing that that is not the way to have a connection with somebody. That is not the way of treating somebody as an equal. That is not the way... To come to understand more about each other and to build a more just uh, political society. And that sort of, to me, is my personal angle on the concern I have about some of that.
0: Yeah. It must be very trippy to shift identities in that way. I'm wondering, like, the first time you experienced that, was it jarring? Or, like, what did that feel like to know that in this context you were perceived in a certain way, but in a totally different context you perceive in almost the opposite way.
1: Yeah, I think perhaps at the beginning when I arrived in the United States, I might have been a little bit naive about that because I sort of felt, and it was also a very different political moment. It was a moment of the ascendancy of Barack Obama and so on. And so I sort of felt like, oh, here we're in a country where that doesn't have to define relationships we have to each other. And I noticed sometimes that was elements of this. I mean, again, I started graduate school in 2007. I would sort of lived in New York for a year before that, but I was really when I came to the United States. And so it was the time of Obama's primary campaign. And I remember a moment, which I described in my first book, Stranger in My Own Country, which is a memoir about growing up Jewish in Germany, where a classmate of mine, who's herself not white, you know, she preferred Hillary Clinton for whatever set of reasons. She just liked Clinton better in the 2008 primaries. And she was really making the case for Clinton. And most of us were on the side of Obama, you know, but she was passionately defending Clinton as was a good right. And when a guy came in who was actually good friends with her, who's black, and she suddenly became so embarrassed to be arguing for Hillary Clinton. Like, you could just see that her tone and the way she was arguing for this just became so much more sort of circumspect and careful. And so I recognized that similarity. I was like, oh, this is the kind of thing that I might have experienced in Germany. But in my own circle, it didn't feel like I had to engage in that. I could treat everybody the same and that was easy. And I think that's still mostly the case. I mean, I hope that's what I do, but certainly there was a moment in 2020, 2021 with some of the strange cultural transformation within liberal spaces where I was very worried about, was it going to be forced to be overly careful in a way that I think is counterproductive?
0: Well, it's good to know that you haven't experienced a sort of continuation of or an intensification of being treated differently, based upon perceived or real identities, you know.
1: So I want to get back to you and your work, Phil. Sure. So I think you've described very clearly and compellingly what the problem with some of those trainings is. And so I suppose people said, "Hey, like you have great ideas about this. Why don't you put them into practice?" So what does that look like? What is the theory that analyzes your work, and how do you try to put that into practice in your work?
0: So the theory of enchantment is the name of my organization, and we have three principles that we're sort of grounded in, and those principles are treat people like human beings, not political abstractions, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, and try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Again, with the understanding that supremacy as a general psychological tendency is actually an extreme form of projection because the supremacist has to be deeply insecure because otherwise they would feel no reason to tear another person down in order to feel good about themselves. So it's a projection. And we have workshops and also an online course that basically teaches people how to get in a healthy relationship with themselves and how to start to accept their own diversity. Sometimes when people say, when I ask people, you know, what is their vision of a racially harmonious society look like? They'll say, Oh, when I see a snapshot of, you know, I don't know, a graduation or something, I want it to be more diverse faces. I don't want it to be like all white faces. And I tell that person, you know, I say, at Theory of Enchantment, we believe that there's so much diversity in a single human being, let alone an entire group of people. So really, the lens that we're trying to get you to obtain is one through which you can actually see that even in a room full of white people, there is diversity actually going on. You just have to know how to look in a way that goes beyond simply being skin deep. And you can only do that, I think, if you learn how to do that with yourself, right? Because when we stereotype others, we also simultaneously stereotype ourselves. If I say that if I stereotype a group of people as, you know, lazy... I'm denying the fact that in some contexts, I am lazy, right? So I'm pigeonholing myself even while pigeonholing others. So all of our work is really in service of getting people to expand their perception first internally and then working through that externally. We use a lot of pop culture to help us do that. This is deliberate because I hold the idea of the artist in high esteem. So whether you're a musician, whether you're an actor, whether you're a writer, one of the artist's tasks is to be able to hold contradiction and to hold space for contradiction. Again, diversity, right? And so pop culture is full of sources that teach people how to do that. Disney movies are full of this type of content. For example, songs and hip hop, you know, canon is full of literature, if you will, that can teach people how to actually do that. So we use a lot of that pop culture from the zeitgeist, but also pop culture that's come before, all in service of teaching people how to get in a healthy relationship with themselves so that they can get in a healthy relationship with others. That's fascinating.
1: I'm going to push you on some of the things that I both find super interesting and that perhaps come as naturally to me, which is the spiritual element of this. I think there's one difference between us is that you sort of have much more of a spiritual bent than I do. This sounds convincing to me as a theory of both what produces discrimination in people, what produces those kinds of viewpoints in people, and of how to make a whole human being who's capable of loving. Are we aiming to hide in a kind of organizational context? Like if I'm running an institution or running a company and like, I just want to make sure that people treat each other decently and that we're able to get our job done and, but I'm not going to, you know, have a lawsuit on my hands and all of those things. And you sort of come in and say, well, everybody here has to become a whole person. (laughs) All have to become spiritually whole. Like I would love for every institution to become spiritually whole, but... Some people ain't gonna be spiritually whole, right? Yeah. And it's not clear that, like, it's either my job or within the capacity of me as an institutional leader to transform people in that kind of way. So is this something where the goal is beautiful and for people who really are convinced by this, that's what we should aim for? But in order to make sure that we get along in this complicated diverse society with its complicated diverse institutions, perhaps we should aim a little bit lower. What would be your response to that?
0: That's a great question. Listen, we're not for everyone, that's for sure. You know, we know what we stand for. We are definitely, I would say, spiritually, psychologically minded. But I also think that, like, quite frankly, and I would be curious to see if you have pushback on this. I feel like there's certain emergencies going on in America right now (laughs) in terms of, like, meaning, collapsing, superficial identities, causing discord, infighting, polarization, all these things And especially the collapse of meaning, I think, dictates that we go towards the question of how do we become whole. It would be one thing if there were sort of just pockets, to give a metaphor, like little dams breaking here and there that suggest that there's an issue with mass polarization in America. But it seems to me like a tsunami is coming. (laughs) And I think that that type of problem requires a holistic solution. And quite frankly, you know, if you're running an organization and the people in your organization are whole beings, the organization will run well and it will run better just for the simple fact that any conflict that might come up interpersonally within the confines of the organization, the people will just have better tools to deal with it. And that will affect, you know, how it's run and how it operates in many different facets. But I do think that we're facing a huge problem in America that is an existential problem and an epistemological problem. Because to go back to Robin D'Angelo right quick, she was basically proposing an epistemology, right? A kind of way of knowing. And when you get into that territory, you have to have something, I think, on that same level in order to tackle that. You can't just sort of like put band-aids on it.
1: So what does that look like in concrete terms, right? You go into an organization with the admirable and bold goal of making people more whole and getting them to confront their fears that can turn into this anger and this hatred. What's step number one? What do you actually do? How do you get people on board with that? And how can you help people make that progress?
0: So it depends on the level of engagement that a company wants with us. Sometimes a company simply wants to do like, let's say a shallow introduction to the theory of enchantment. And for that, we would do what's called our 90-minute sprint, which is an introduction to the first principle. Treat people like human beings, not political abstractions.
1: Give us a 90-second version of a 90-minute workshop.
0: So the 90-second version is just we show people practices that they can embody in order to start treating people like human beings, not political abstractions. But then if people want like a deeper dive, what we'll usually do is we'll do a survey first of the folks in the organization, asking them questions about belonging, asking them questions about flow states. These are actually all connected. We'll see what this survey reveals to us. Then we will take all or most of their cohorts that they want through what's called Enchantment Academy, which is our online course, self-paced. And that's like the deeper dive into theory of enchantment. It's like 25 lessons. And again, each lesson is about getting in a healthy relationship with yourself, we talk about so many different things from a psychological perspective that affect the human being. And then after that, we'll offer something like intermittent coaching. So a coach comes in and actually helps the organization build systems to perpetuate that new way of being. And so the idea is that at the end, we'll take another survey and we'll see if there has been any shifts from the first survey. So that's more of like a real deep dive into the theory of enchantment if an organization is looking for that.
1: And what kind of shifts are you looking for and what kind of shifts have you seen? I mean, if somebody was to respond to all of this critically and say, this all sounds great, but like, how can this possibly work? Like, what shifts do you see on those surveys that indicate to you that actually you are able to move people in a meaningful way?
0: So I would say there's two different examples The first would be just shifts and increases of the feeling of belonging in the workplace. And usually that also corresponds with more experiences of flow states, actually. If a person says on a survey that they experience a lot of moments of belonging, they usually will say they also experience a lot of moments of flow states consistent with each other. So we want to see those things increase. And on another level, we also see testimonials from people saying... For the longest time i didn't speak to my colleague because i knew they were a trump supporter and then i did enchantment academy and i decided to reach out to my colleague and also it's not just about your immediate colleagues it's also because it's you know holistically centered it's also about how you're showing up in every walk of life so we sometimes get testimonials saying I reached out to my family member who I wasn't talking to for X amount of years. We've gotten testimonials saying theory of entrapment is the only thing that kept me sane in 2020 with everything going on. So like these are different examples of changes that we're seeing in some of our participants. And so what would you
1: say to a critique which says, look, it's wonderful for people to become more whole and to work on themselves in that kind of way? But is there actually any space within all of this to deal with some of the real injustices in America, right? When you say this graduation ceremony, you know, I want to see more diverse faces. A lot of colleges have actually become very diverse, but I think there is a fair critique to say of a political cabinet. is just like all white people, there's something unrepresentative about it. And it probably shows that people are being excluded in some kind of way, because there is talent in every demographic in the United States, right? Within that kind of workshop is there space for saying, Hey, I feel isolated here because people look at me weird because of my origin or they have prejudices about my religion or whatever else. So how do you build space for productive conversations about those real points of conflict, which, you know, have real causes?
0: Yeah, so we teach different modalities in the theory of enchantment that are, I would say, specifically geared to facilitating those difficult conversations. So, for example, we teach nonviolent communication which was a methodology pioneered by Marshall Rosenberg, who did this in conflict zones all around the world. We will teach different philosophies.
1: Can you say a little bit more about what that means, what that looks like in practice?
0: Well, nonviolent communication, is actually related to serious play. If we were to consider dialogue a piece of serious play and you get into conflict with another person, what are the different practices Like deep listening or empathy, or repeating back to the person precisely what they said instead of immediately going into disagreement. So you can communicate to the person that you actually heard them, right? Being a container for people, even when you're in conflict with them. Like these are not easy propositions, you know, that sort of come down from on high that say, oh, if you're experiencing someone being offensive towards you, then do X, Y, and Z immediately, and that will solve the problem completely, right? Rather, instead of that, we're actually giving people some social emotional tools to actually be able to hold space for each other, even in the midst of profound disagreement, right? Even to be able to have empathy for each other, even in the midst of profound disagreement. And our bet is that that empathy in the long run will actually help people transcend the conflict, But let me be very clear. We are co-creating these things with our partners, right? What we're not doing is going into an organization and trying to superimpose some kind of apparatus. And we're saying like, implement this in your policy book. And this is DEI. No, we're actually trying to co-create ways to handle these difficult conversations, right? Because very much so, someone might be experiencing something in the workplace that's very harmful, but How do you address it without causing more harm? And how do you put, I would say, practices in place that make it less likely that that will occur in the future? That's really what we're focused on.
1: Let's zoom out a little bit. You know, you mentioned that D'Angelo has a kind of epistemology. She also has just like a basic political analysis, which is saying that the United States has always been defined by racism and white supremacy, but we haven't made any significant progress. You know, there are many reasons to worry about our political situation. I certainly get very depressed when I look at cable news. I get very worried when I think about the 2024 election. Yeah, I also feel somewhat more optimistic, certainly more optimistic than the does, about the state of our society. What's your assessment of the ability of people all across the country to actually communicate with each other in a meaningful way across those kind of boundaries? Do you think that some of that is happening? Do you think that it really takes a lot of assistance for those spaces to open up? Are you optimistic about those metrics improving over the next decades? Do you think it's more likely we're going to take a step back?
0: I mean, there are definitely organizations working on this, right? Like working on depolarization, broadly speaking. It's hard to tell, though, the answer to your question because, you know, I'm on social media. Social media is a bubble. And social media also gives me the perception that people are just constantly at each other's throats. So to what extent is that the truth versus a bubble that I'm in is a very difficult question to answer. I do wonder, though, with that and the combination of spikes in sort of like mental health issues. We saw it before COVID, but we saw it, I think, exacerbate during COVID, especially among young people. Let's say Gen Zers, for example. I think that the combination of those two factors is a very worrisome combination. (laughs) And will we weather that storm in the next decade? I couldn't tell you, I have no idea, right? It will literally take a significant amount of us to do the work of learning how to do that because I don't think we've had to learn how to do that for so long, at least since the 90s. My perception has been that like, Growing up, these were not conversations that were happening in my elementary school. You know, just take race, for example. In my elementary school and in my high school, I went to both predominantly Black schools and also predominantly multicultural schools. And in neither of those environments do I remember this sort of approach to speaking about race that we've taken collectively now. We definitely talked about it, but it wasn't in this way and it wasn't through this paradigm. So I'm not sure about the future. I only know that if we want to change the future, we have to do the work. We can't like sit back and assume that it's going to be all peachy, you know, in 10 years. We have to, I'm sorry to say it, but we have to do the work of learning how to become whole. And the original model of the United States is E Pluribus Unum, out of many one, which is an incredibly difficult thing to accomplish, Some might argue impossible, right? But this is, I would argue, the legacy and the birthright of our nation. And we have to really do the work in order to become that vision.
1: One way of thinking about what you're trying to do is to give people a path through the culture wars that doesn't involve them becoming combatants on one side or or the other. Yeah. And I understand that to you, the arts and artists have a huge role to play in that. What does it mean... I guess to create art at a moment when the world is so polarized into these sort of warring ideological tribes.
0: Well, one of my favorite artists is Michaela Cole, brilliant writer and actress did the amazing HBO drama I May Destroy You. Highly recommend it, go watch it. I think she got an Emmy for writing a short series last year. And in her speech, she actually talks about the importance of the artist not being afraid to not be in the public eye all the time. One of the things that we are tempted constantly into being obsessed with is social media and social media is like, you know, pay attention all the time to everything happening all the time. Right. And that can actually be stunting to one's creative process because it's all external facing you're constantly wondering how many likes do I have? How many retweets do I have? How many people outside of myself are externally validating my work? Whereas I think the artist, in order to be a true artist, has to have the courage and the confidence to go within and to be with themselves in the silence, right? She says, don't confuse visibility for success. And the artist, I would say, also has to avoid sort of like this corporatization or this productifying of everything. I often think of these concepts of whiteness and blackness, which are two terms that have entered our lingo very recently, actually, in terms of mass culture. I wonder, you know, what does that have to do with philosophy coming out of the academia? But also, what does that have to do with just people wanting to create products out of identity? and sort of like repackage and sell them to people. So the artist has to be wary of that in order to maintain the integrity of her work.
1: One question that I have is about what ultimately divides us at the moment, right? So often the way that media presents it, what really divides us is ethnicity, culture, race. I think there's some interesting indications that at least on all kinds of studies, what divides us most deeply is partisan political identity. So the obvious development from 1960 to today is that in 1960, parents did not object to their children marrying somebody of a different political party, and now they do. At the same time in 1960, most Americans would have very strenuously objected to their child marrying somebody of a different race, and now, thankfully, most Americans do not object to that. Does that track with your experience actually leading these workshops and so on, that the political divisions are the deepest, or do you think that actually in everyday life, there is still this real cultural division and discomfort with each other for historical reasons and for what people represent to each other and because of clashing interests along these sort of more identitarian lines.
0: I think it's a false dichotomy between those two categories. I think that for sure people are polarized across political lines, but I think that the reason for that is cultural. Well, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons for that is the collapse of meaning. The thing that is most hotly discussed in my workshops is race. Maybe say the intersection of race and culture, but what's informing that is a paradigm that basically views the world as a fight between the oppressors and the oppressed, right, all the way down, basically. Like, that's the epistemology. And so I am familiar with that epistemology because I grew up in a very religious home that had a similar epistemology. Not quite the same, but a similar epistemology, and not along racial lines, right? But along religious lines. But that was the constant framing. So I understand how the framing works, and I understand the allure of that framing, right? And so that is what I would say is the most difficult challenge to contend with because that framing is easy, it's enticing, it's alluring, there's a simple solution to it, you know, it's us versus them. You know, Carl Jung, famous psychiatrist, said that that view of the world is actually our default state as human beings because of our limbic system. So, like, when I say we have to do the work of becoming whole, I'm really saying that, like, we like to talk about how to improve systems, right? How to change system, how to reform the system, how to overthrow the system. But we're walking around with a limbic system, which is millions of years old. If we want to reform the system, we have to work on that system first and foremost, because that is the lens through which we perceive and experience everything. And that's tall order. I recognize that, but that's what I'm going for. And
1: who do you think is most drawn to this in these workshops that you lead? Is it, you know, people who have been exposed to a certain set of ideas in college or in other parts of popular culture? Is it people who have a certain kind of psychological makeup? Is the main driver of demographics? And how do you try to push against that? I mean, if you're dealing with somebody who really is deep in that kind of friend enemy distinction, who really is deep in this kind of, you know, there's the oppressor, the oppressed, and there's two clear moral categories, and you're on the wrong side, and I'm on the right side, how do you try to coax them out of that?
0: If I understand the first question correctly, I don't think that there's a common characteristic or trait that I've observed in people that have that position, have that viewpoint. I really think it's like the default, the thing that we as human beings default to, especially when we experience scarcity. Again, because it's a compensation for scarcity. In terms of how do I try to coax them out of it, I try to show them that that is in and of itself a caricaturing and a stereotyping of reality itself. And usually these are people who don't want to stereotype and don't want a caricature. And often they will see how insisting upon this paradigm and this paradigm alone is an act of pigeonholing the very people whose liberation they claim to want. It's not always successful. One of the things that I'm trying to also model though is not always winning the argument, but rather, again, being in conversation for the sake of conversation and for the sake of cultivating empathy which tends to have a long-term effect, but not necessarily effect in the immediate time that we're in.
1: So finally, for listeners who are convinced by this and who want to become more whole or who perhaps have somebody in their life who they wish were more whole, what do you recommend they do if they don't happen to have a benefit of one of these trainings? What are some of the practices, some of the thoughts, some of the readings you would suggest if people want to either start out in that journey for themselves or help someone else along that journey?
0: Well, I will start by saying that anyone can enroll in Theory of Enchantment at any time that is available. The online course is available to anyone who would like to enroll. In terms of books, there's just like too many books I can recommend. I'm interested in the way the human being works, right, fundamentally. So if people are interested in that, I would check out books like The Master and His emissary by Ian McGilchrist, which is about the brain. I would check, from a political perspective, I would check out The True and Only Heaven by Christopher Lash, which is looking at my bookshelf. For cultural commentary on race, I would check out the writings of Albert Murray. For Jungian psychology, which the theory of enchantment is heavily informed by, I would check out anything by Marion Woodman or Helen Luke or Jung himself. So that's a lot, but that's the world that I'm swimming in right now. (laughs)
1: Gloria Valerie thank you for coming on the podcast
0: thank you Asha
1: thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show if you too have been enjoying the podcast please be liked rate the show on iTunes tell your friends all about it share it on Facebook or Twitter and finally please make suggestions for great guests